Did Colby Covington break Kamar Usman's 100% takedown defense record at UFC 268? Kamaru Usman admits Colby Covington took him down in the third round of their UFC 268 fight. Kamaru Usman's takedown defense is still 100%. Did Colby Covington break Kamaru Usman? Kamaru Usman admits Colby Covington took him down. Why Covington wasn't the one to take them? Kamaru Usman and Hello, gentlemen, ladies, or at least imaginary ones, the ones I, I hope are present in the audience. Hello and welcome to Tengri Dome, uh, episode whatever, uh, I'm your host Iggy and today we're gonna recap UFC 268. And very calm and uh, measured and uh, balanced manner. I'm gonna stay calm. I'm gonna t try and uh, build a nuanced picture of the events that happened at UFC two sixty uh, two. At UFC two sixty eight. But before uh, before we do so, uh, all the all the main uh, fighters. Uh, it was kind of like a Trevor Whitman derby, uh, I guess. Though, when you say derby, that usually means that uh, all the competitors are competing against one another. But, nah. Anyway. Basically, it was Rose Namayunas, Justin Keiji, and uh, Gamaru Usman who were there. And uh, all are Whitman fighters now. Uh, Usman uh, moved to Whitman's quite a while ago. And has been training with him ever since. And it's a bit of a controversial subject in terms of uh, did uh, Whitman improve Kamaru Usman? Did uh, Whitman inst like uh, make Kamaru Usman worse? At, at least at TFS it is a controversial subject because we keep arguing back and forth whether or not uh, the, the, the trade-off of Usman no longer being so razor-focused strategically on uh, being a, a grindy pressure guy uh, versus uh, becoming a more of a a more well-rounded striker was beneficial at all because tactically yes it may be may seem like a <clears throat> may seem like an obvious improvement like on the surface it's obvious that being a better striker is better if you want to be better as a fighter however uh, whenever you like kind of sacrifice your strategic focus in in favor of acquiring new tactical looks, it may be a mixed blessing. And uh, we'll talk about this as we get into the uh, into into the breakdown for actual for the actual fights. And with Rose Namayunas, yes, she has improved a lot at Whitman's. However, uh, she seems to be repeating that same pattern of Whitman fighters, kind of like turning into mid-range boxer punches that like to look like looking for the for big counters which uh, frequently costs them the initiative and uh, frequently costs them uh, certain opportunities they may have pursued had they not been so pre preoccupied with sort of like moving around their opponent as opposed to moving around the cage what do i mean by that <clears throat> so like at hoft's usman pursued a very clear directionality in the fight. He would, he, the idea was to always press his opponents up against the cage and then punish them there. And at Whitman, ever since he came to Whitman's, he now moves around his opponent rather than, like, picks... He never really doesn't really pick a directionality in which he wants the fight to go on. He just kind of, like, goes with the flow of it. And uh, it can work. It can work wonderfully, as uh, Usman, some of Usman's... Previous prior fights under Whitman's under Whitman have shown. However, uh, there's also the uh, side effect of uh, the fighter kind of like uh, conceding space for no reason, which we saw Usman do, and which 
and we saw Geiji do that as well as Namayunas at points. And it's really a shame because uh, Justin Geiji is also obviously for for the largest for the largest stretch of his career, for the majority of his career, he was like a quintessential pressurized warmer, you know. And then he turned into a backfoot counterpuncher, and he looked fine doing that, except against Khabib. But and you, you can be—it's absolutely fine to become a backfoot fighter if you if you know what you're doing. You can absolutely win fights off off the backfoot. It's not like an indictment or like a death sentence. It's just hard, you know. But in this one, Gagey kind of like uh, took center cage. And maintain his position there, uh, in there, which allows him to find more opportunities to punish Chandler for his lunges, rather than you know, as opposed to if he were if he went completely on the back foot. And the the problem with uh, the back foot, especially among Whitman fighters, is that they're just not very good off the back foot. You know, just the movement is just not very efficient, because uh, kind of like. Mm, Someone like Eddie Alvarez was very good at uh, fighting off the back foot, and uh, obviously Jose Aldo is excellent at fighting off the back foot, but the the, the difference is that Alvarez, uh, uh, Alvarez was very disciplined with his foot movements, and he was very good at changing directions, like showing, one, uh, showing that he's going to exit one way and then darting out the other. And Jose Aldo just plain stood his ground, and... Uh, Never conceded space for free. If you were going to try and press him back, press uh, press him to the cage, you're probably gonna have to walk through like absolute hell to do that. And the reason why Yan won their fight was that Yan was able to actually outposition him and outmaneuver him and kind of like weather the storm in the pocket. Anyway, so uh, all three fighters kind of like um, have their problems. One. Um, uh, the, the the problems are more pronounced for certain fighters rather than others, and like vice versa and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you get the idea, okay? <clears throat> I guess now we can actually start talking about the main event, which is was which was uh, Kamara Usman versus Colby Covington too. Not going to waste any time here. I think there's, there's some concepts we can explain on the go, on the fly. All right. So uh, basically, what did uh, Kamara Usman need to do? Uh, basically a repeat of the first fight except harder and better and get, get hit way less and he could have done that because he's way superior at range especially after training at Whitman's he's he's now a, an actually an okayish mid-range boxer and Colby Covington was kind of like very tentative and uh, oddly passive for the first couple rounds and basically all all that happened was that Colby got his ass beat like got knocked around from pillar to post, almost got finished. He was laying curled up on the ground after a left after a Kamaru Usman left hook, and uh, ready to go out. But Kamaru Usman, for whatever reason, didn't press the issue. I don't know if it's a psychological thing. I, I, maybe he wanted to like create a neat bookend where he beats uh, Colby Covington up for five rounds and then finishes him late, that kind of stuff. Fighters are susceptible to that sort of thinking at times. Uh, it doesn't excuse that it's uh, it's happened. It doesn't excuse that these things happen. It's, it's a dumb decision, quite frankly, but, uh, you know, uh, these things, they happen. They tend to happen in combat sports. So basically, really... Bad decision-making by Kamara overall. Like, he didn't press the issue, uh, abandoned the body attack. He landed several times with the uppercut to the body, with, with which he pretty much completely deflated Colby Covington in the first fight. And then this one, each time he connected, Colby Covington was sent reeling backwards and uh, never went back to it. Maybe because he had so much success head-hunting. I don't know. So Colby somehow finds his way back into the fight. Uh, after the third round, uh, despite his own offense being largely completely ineffectual, and Usman completely lost control of the optics by the end. And the thing is, the thing why this is so frustrating is that Usman absolutely dominated that fight. He absolutely kicked Colby Covington's ass, like no question. 
zero question about it, but he lost, the, the optics were so terrible for him, and the commentary was so atrocious, that we are now getting all these narratives, as uh, all the narratives that we tend to get after a, a big card like that, after a big fight like that. People argue, arguing about takedown percentages. People arguing about significant strikes landed. Uh, statistics, numbers, and uh, like uh, body language analysis, all that kind of bullshit. And the thing is, none of it fucking matters. Because Usman damn near fucking killed Colby, Co Colby Covington in there. And like, Colby had... No business coming on strong late. Like, zero business doing that. And this was, like, the tentative, jittery version of Colby with a cracked chin. The version of Colby that got dropped multiple times. The version of Colby that didn't even pursue his win condition early on. Like, he was too, uh, too, too fucking uh, anxious about entering range against Usman that he kind of, like, danced around on the outside and then started barging in. With the ugliest uppercuts you could imagine. <clears throat> the the most annoying thing is that it worked. Like, basically, in the first time around, the jab-to-body attack combination ruined Colby. Uh, like, in the first fight. And, uh, again, was, all Usman had to do was just basically, like, uh, create a tighter repeat of that first performance. Like, and uh, the problem is, the problem why I think this happened is that Usman got too preoccupied with his fancy new looks acquired at Whitman's, while forgetting that his defensive reactions in the pocket are still largely nascent. <clears throat> and uh, at this stage in his career, honestly, uh, I, think I think they're likely to never develop to a level where he can comfortably react to strikes on the fly. Like, at this stage in his career, I don't think it's possible. And so Colby managed to find an avenue past uh, Usman's far superior attack at range by just, well, he basically just kind of like darted in, throwing like straight arm uppercuts. It's the ugliest thing ever, except it worked because Usman's head movement is large, largely consists of uh, exaggerated ducks and slips, like way over exaggerated, like way out of proportion. He reacts to strikes, like first of all, he never had the best reaction to strikes, in general. Like, he would get hit, and then he would start chasing bees. Like, ah, get the fuck away from me. And um, in, now that he's trained at Whitman's, he kind of, like, started developing some head movement, some actual head movement, like, trying to, like, slip to the side and kind of, like, uh, move his head a little bit. But he only does that when no strikes are coming in. Just kind of, like, it's, it's his new idol in the animation. And while his progress is impressive, because he's not a natural striker at all, he's not a natural, comfortable striker, like, by any measure, but he was a still, through constant work, he has been able to improve, and uh, there are certain areas where he looks incredibly good, but uh, he's still, like, he's in the pocket, he's still atrocious. Like, his reaction and his reactions and his optics, kind of like, they do most of the work for his opponents in terms of judging. Like, whenever a judge sees Kamaru Usman get hit, he sees Kamaru Usman, like, kind of, like, closing his eyes, ducking, like, way down, and uh, looking like, uh, I don't know, he just got uh, stung in the eyes. Just terrible. Usman reacts to strikes as if each punch is, like, the size of his torso, you know? And the fist is like, it's this, it's, this, it's this tiny thing. All you need is kind of like, just move your head a little bit to the side and you're going to evade the punch. But some people just have this ingrained reaction that is very hard to get rid of. I mean, for a pound-for-pound pound number one, I'd say this was, a, quite frankly, a shocking performance. If I were Usman's head coach, I'd be screaming my fucking head off right now. Because really, this is a strategic failure. Like, you do not let the fight go from a guy laying curled up on the ground after two rounds of getting his entire shit pushed in to people saying that the guy who were who was laying on the ground almost completely knocked out arguably stole the championship rounds. The people are wrong, but they're still going to say this. 
They're still saying it. They're saying it right now. And, like, I'd be way less harsh if the guy in question wasn't, like, a total stylistic layup. Like, and uh, if Usman didn't win comfortably by all sane metrics, it's just that the optics are, like, complete dog shit. And optics and framing, like, matter quite a bit at this level, you know? At least for your reputation and legacy. It's kind of like, I mean, I, I guess psychologically, Colby Covington isn't really a layout for for Usman because uh, against Colby, he just fucking refuses to use his grappling even though he just, like, obviously is way superior on the ground than Colby. It's like uh, uh, Dara Nugent, one of our, a friend of the site, Dara, talked about how, like, uh, Colby was designed in the lab for Usman to clearly win while looking like a fucking dumbass. And I tend to agree. That's really the crux of the whole thing. Uh, everything else is kind of like the nitty, uh, nitty gritty nuts and bolts of uh, that matchup kind of like don't matter uh, all that much. Except, I guess, uh, uh, the problem with uh, Usman's striking that he's developed at Whitman. Like, oh, m many Whitman fighters tend to develop this kind of like uh, fascination with their own technical ability, if you will. Like, both Rose and Usman utilize lots of head slot feints, by which I mean they kind of, like, uh, shift their head to a different position to bait a reaction out of your opponent. That's normally how you should use a head slot feint. With them, I d I'm not sure that's the case. I think they just do that because they're kind of, like, thinking, oh, I guess this is what technical fighters do. I'm now technical. I'm supposed to be technical. I'm going to do technical shit. And so they use stutter step feints, where you kind of, like, move forward with your feet, like, in these teensy tiny little steps to kind of, like, create the impression that you're going to throw uh, uh, throw an attack, because this accelerates your tempo uh, in movement. Like, normally you would move, like, this is you moving around your opponent, kind of, like, moving your head. And then before your attack... Or before you launch an attack, you kind of like throw a feint, like like this little stutter step, and they do that a lot. Except they do that from like thirty feet away, <laughs> so it, it serves no actual real purpose. So essentially, it's pointless. You're not supposed to do that at a distance where your opponent cannot hit you. You first first you have to enter range. First, you have to establish your distance. And then you use all that to prepare your attacks. Not the other way around. You don't abandon all that shit the moment the exchange happens. But uh, this is just uh, something that needs to be ingrained over hundreds and hundreds of hours of sparring and training and drills. I'm now starting to wonder if Justin Gage just styles on both rows and Usman inspiring, and that's why they cannot develop any, like, ingrained proper defensive reactions. I don't know. I mean, the thing is, not to be, like, super harsh on Trevor Whitman, coaches and fighters frequently focus on very specific areas of skill development, which leaves them with no time to break down and analyze concepts like ringcraft and footwork from a strategic standpoint. And fighters frequently have no time to take a step back and reflect on what they've learned because of, like, because of the sheer... Uh, because of how relentless the UFC schedule tends to be. However, I would still say that it is a huge, huge flaw on part of many uh, an MMA coach in that they uh, do not think about uh, fights in these terms, you know, in terms of, like, directionality. Where do you want the fight to go and why do you want it? And in terms of ringcraft, like... In which, in which positions should I corral my opponent in order to hurt them or like establish uh, establish a distance that is beneficial for me uh, like, like hammering these concepts into their fighters' heads it's very likely that the coaches may understand these things They're very well uh, they should be at least to have a license for fuck's sake but the fighters do not quite uh, like, you can count the amount of fighters who understand these things uh, on the fingers of one hand. And maybe the, there is more. 
except uh, they're not able to implement it well. And we see that this even at the championship level. Like if you go back to Hoft, uh, Hoft's Usman, and uh, if you look at someone like, um, let's say, for example, Gilbert Burns, a lot of Hoft fighters. This is something uh, our Discord patron uh, Bronan pointed out. Like a lot of Hoft fighters tend to understand their limitations. Like okay, they have the same. Uh, they have uh, like they may be more road than Whitman fighters, and that that is kind of like uh, an indisputable fact. But uh, they have the setups, kicks, and combinations that work really well when they put them together. But since Usman is one of those fighters that needs to think less to be successful, uh, he now he's he's like it's it was obvious that he thinks before he throws. And now he tries to be even more thoughtful in terms of his striking and shot selection, which takes a long while. Uh, it takes a long while for him to register what he needs to throw before he actually throws it. You know, thinking is slow. Human brains are slow. If you think in a fight, you're going to be slow. That's just how it is. That's why it's kind of like a trade-off between being... It's a balancing act between having ingrained road reactions where it's something that you just throw at a hair trigger and when you like kind of like specifically look for for the opening and you can incre- you can lessen the amount of time you need to think about openings by practicing constantly it's kind of like uh one of the thing one of those things it can be an ingrained uh attribute some just you have an eye for the counter you have an eye for an opening but with most people. Uh, practice is all it takes, and I am not sure that. Uh, basically, the older a fighter gets, I mean, for lack of a better term, the more calcified his brain becomes, and trying to master uh, extremely like technical, thoughtful striking at this stage in your career, I mean, it's a, it's an admirable endeavor, it's, and it's admirable admirable that Usman has been able to develop all these neat looks. But it still came at the cost of something. That's what I think. It's like uh, Haxorize talked about this. We we had a lengthy discussion after the fight where we talked about all the uh, benefits and flaws of training at Whitman. Like Ryan talked about how Whitman instills great pocket work in his fighters, but he like either he tries to make turn them into mid range pocket boxers, or it's like by virtue of his instruction, the fighter kind of like either misinterpret what he's trying to say and then kind of like develop into this mold on their own. Uh, it's like I said in the beginning, they move around their opponents rather than around the cage and uh, the uh, problems what they have on the back foot and all that kind of stuff. Like it can work great for some fighters, but Usman's style doesn't really just gel with it all that well. And Hex talked about how uh, like if you look at if you listen to Whitman's corner advice, if you listen to what he actually says, like he says like something like use forward pressure to get them swinging, and then counter, use their forward pressure so you can counter then push forward, and Whitman fighters are like I am now technical, I am technical, I'm gonna walk backwards, I'm gonna walk backwards all the time and counter because I'm being very technical. Then I can only pressure when I have to, which makes me the most technical of, of fighter of them all. And it's like, f- fucking no. Uh, it's like, you, you have to use this stuff in tandem to make sure it works most of the time. Uh, you know, basically what I'm saying is that Whitman fighters get pre- preoccupied, get obsessed with slickster shit without really understanding what makes slicksters tick. That's all there is to it. Like, trying to be sharp uh, at range where you can get hit wh- while your reactions are still very unnatural and like you have to think about them and uh, you're very uncomfortable at that range. Uh, it basically just turns the fights more competitive than it has to be. Yeah. Like this, and the lack of urgency after the uh, second round. 
after he knocked him down. It's just weird. It's just shows kind of like this lack of killer instinct. That I very much enjoy seeing fighters display, and this this time Usman didn't. Kind of let let Colby off the hook, which is alarming. Not damning. Uh, I'm not saying Usman is washed or that he's shit now or that he sucks now because he didn't like get Colby out of there. I'm just pointing out all the flaws that kind of worry me a little bit. And I think these flaws need to be addressed if Usman is to continue being pound for pound number one. And Rose Namayuna has displayed much of the same problems in her fight against uh, Zhong Weili. And, uh, but uh, the thing is, it's, like, uh, it's kind of a common theme in that uh, Usman, in that Whitman, I'm sorry, instills great process in, in his fighters, but their idiosyncrasies still shine through and then kind of like hurt the implementation of that process. Uh, so it's not like Whitman is solely to blame for their flaws. It would be unfair. But Namayunas kind of looks like, kind of looks worse in every rematch that he, she's ever had. Like uh, the first her fir first fight against Yana Yanjajic sparks her out early. Second fight, incredibly competitive throughout. The distance. It goes the distance and it remains incredibly com competitive throughout the fight. Arguably, arguably lost a lot of the rounds and arguably Yoni and Jacek has won that one. Also, another fight where a commentary was going on, the commentary was going on and on about round-stealing takedowns, which isn't a thing, by the way. A takedown means fucking, absolutely fucking nothing. It means zero. Zilch. Because the criteria is based on damage. If you take someone down, land no damage, and basically like hang out in top control, you're not scoring anything. And if the guy on bottom is hitting you like with elbows and slicing you up, then that's the guy who's winning. Except uh, with most judges, they tend to like kind of still think, oh, this guy is on top, so that means he's probably winning. Uh, no, it's not. It doesn't mean that. Yeah, but uh, it's a problem we've had for ages. Kind of like... I get tired of repeating that every time, but... What the fuck are you gonna do? Yeah, and this one, like, sparks Zhang early, and now struggles with her for five rounds. Zhang also looked like dog shit, quite frankly. Like, uh, what's a technical stand-up? I don't know what's that. I'm gonna... I don't know what that means. I'm gonna bicycle kick from bottom. And she was ostensibly training with Henry fucking Cejudo. And still, she did not know how to get up uh, from from underneath Rose, who, uh, just to point out, does not have the best top control uh, at straw weight. The commentary was also pretty fucking ludicrous. Uh, I mean, it was terrible throughout the whole event because it was fucking Joe Rogan and Daniel Comey. And DC is kind of atrocious on his own. He's pretty fucking bad. And uh, half the things he says about wrestling are frequently wrong. But whenever John jo jo Joe Rogan shows up in there with him, like the last of Daniel Comey's halfway worthwhile thoughts kind of like retreat into the basement of his mind and kill one another to fulfill a suicide pact. That's what happens. Just completely buying into whatever narrative that Joe Rogan cooks up. I don't know why. Maybe it's the connection that they share as fellow bold men. Because like, uh, Joe Nanak is kind of like the neutral, uh, the neutral energy. He has, he, he has uh, the neutral Jing from Avatar. And uh, Joe Rogan is like positive Jing, and uh, DC is negative Jing, or whatever. And they, it's it's the interplay. It's they compile the perfect, the perfect like uh, circle of shittiness together. John Anik is not shit, by the way. John Anik is the best of them. That's why he's neutral. <laughs> he's always trying to do his job, and Rogan and DC like uh, are basically there to interfere with his process. Well, yeah, I kind of zoned out 
during that one. I kind of like, I, people are up in arms about scoring, uh, what scores and what doesn't, uh, who won, which round. Uh, I don't fucking care. I think they both should have lost. It's fucking it's just fucking boring. Did not enjoy that one. Did not enjoy that one. Uh, and anyway, that was uh, Shane Burgess versus uh, Billy Quarantillo. A- excellent fight, really great fight. Billy Quarantillo, uh, not quite the athlete Burgess is, but a spirited showing as always, nonetheless. Very annoyed this didn't also get some kind of bonus because my fucking Dana White. Because Dana White, do I need to say more? Uh, anyway, the reasons why Burgess like has a has like gets into scraps with absolutely everyone is that he kind of like he kind of like tries to fight like he's two heads shorter than he actually is. It's very weird. Also, not sure I've enjoyed watching him so. Uh, watching him return to the octagon so quickly after the Barbosa knockout and the Barbosa beating because it was just so alarming the way he fell kind of looked like I've talked about this before but I've talked about this on the immediate post-fight breakdown but whenever someone falls like that in boxing you kind of like presume that he's gonna fucking die afterwards gonna like just collapse in the in the like uh, changing room and that's gonna be it thankfully it didn't happen Still too early for him to fight, I think, but what are you going to do? Anyway, like a quintessential Burgers performance, really. Uh, If you're elite, you're going to have a scrap with him. If you're not elite, you're still going to have a scrap with him. That's his main problem. Still a great fight, though. Kind of a shame that uh, the um, crowd seemed to be completely, like, burnt out after watching Chandler versus Gagey, which is, frankly, fight of the year material. Like, up there with uh, Gagey's bouts with Alvarez and uh, Puglia. I would say as much. I would say say this much. And uh, there was also Frankie versus Cheetah. Uh, Kind of sad because... Frankie is fucking old. Old. Incredibly old. Uh, Cheetah, like, Frankie was top gaming Cheetah for, 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 for much of that fight, but then he got turned into the lazy monkey from those terrible NFTs by a Cheetah Vera front kick. Uh. And finally, of course, uh, for me, for me, it was the real main event of the card. Michael Chandler versus Justin Gagey. And what can I say? It was uh, a quintessential Justin Gagey fight. Like, uh, like a genuine, like, real, like, in all senses of the word. Like a real treat. A real Gagey fight. A fucking Gagey fight. Haven't seen one for a fucking year. Justin Gagey is not the fi- kind of fighter you marinate, you know? It's not the, he's not the kind of fighter that uh, you can uh, kind of, like, shelve for a little bit and then depend on him looking good after he comes back because uh, I think Justin Gagey is the fighter who benefits the most from fighting often, fighting constantly. And Justin Gagey should be headlining every fucking fight night card in existence. Fight night Oshkosh. Justin Gagey main eventing. Fight night fucking I don't know fucking broadhead. Justin Gagey main eventing. It's a it's a flawless business strategy. Just have Justin Gagey fight often. <laughs> let, let him get top billing. He's not gonna disappoint you. I, I think it's historically established that Justin Gagey is fun. He's a fucking fun fighter. If you're going to put him on your card, you're going to have fun. Even if he loses. In some cases, especially if he loses. There was always this talk about Justin Gagey being overrated. Like, uh, like I, I don't know, the, the level of backlash that Justin Gagey received and the amount of hatred he received 
when he started rising up the ranks is it's bizarre i do not understand it i do not un understand where it where it's coming from where it came from and why it even exists uh, justin gage is not overrated you know justin gage if anything he overperformed because for ages everyone was talking about how he's shit how he's uh, like a homer simpson that eats every shot that's coming at him how he's dog shit uh, defending how he's dog shit in the pocket all that kind of stuff and look at him right now hanging in there with real elites i've actually made an entire episode about just engaging revisionism i think it was like uh episode like 13 or 12 i don't know i've made an episode on him i've always liked him because he's like he seems like uh, the most brutally honest uh, fighter with the least amount of delusions like, even as early in, the, in his career, like, he was always talking about how he's going to get knocked the fuck out. And when he, when he got knocked the fuck out, he was like, eh, what are you going to do? And uh, also, uh, all the uh, moments where he was like, I want to die. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, other fighters are always like, oh, yeah, if you got the right mindset, pain isn't real. Like, pain don't hurt. Got the mindset, pain don't hurt. And Justin Gagey is like, always like, yeah, yeah, fucking fighting hurts us, like, fuck, it's very painful, everything is painful, existence is painful, and I fucking love it. That's just who he is. But to tie this uh, all gushing to the theme, uh, to the theme I w wish to explore, I think, uh, I personally think that uh, Gagey is uh, the fighter, out of all Whitman fighters showcased that night, I think Justin is the one with the strongest identity from them all. Uh, and it's one of those things that kind of like, they may sound like uh, a, like a lot of woo, but fighter styles depend a lot on their personality. So and we talked about this with Conor Rebush. Conor Rebush uh, talked about this on Heavy Hands a lot, but uh, Justin Gagey being Justin Gagey helped him avoid a lot of the pitfalls Rose and Isman fell, fell into. Like, um, like, for example, Rose Usman, Rose and... Uh, Usman used lots of fancy pivots, all the head slot feints, like I've talked about, the starter steps, and everything I've just described is performed for no good reason at all. And then they get bombed in the pocket anyway. Zhang Weili was like, she has atrocious punching mechanics, yet she was still connecting a lot in the pocket against Rose. Geiji, however, yeah, he's consistently more efficient. Uh, he showcased some neat new neat new boxing tricks here and there particularly the uh his um, uppercut to left hook combo looked very crisp but it's still janky old gagey fighting his janky old fight because uh michael chandler everyone was like the main concern about chandler was that his durability just isn't there anymore and it suddenly made it like a triumphant return and there's some caveats to that, but it's, it's still an incredibly tough fight. And just Michael Chandler was a lot faster. Uh, he's more explosive, and he hurt Gagey multiple times because uh, because of he kind of exploited Gagey's uh, also janky defensive reactions. They're pretty good, but they're still janky. And uh, yeah, and uh, also one thing, uh, Michael Chandler is constantly uh, billed as being five foot eight. Uh, no, he's fucking not. There <laughs> is there are photos of him standing next to T.J. Dillashaw, and T.J. Dillashaw looks like the taller man. You know, Michael Chandler is probably like five five. I mean, heights in MMA are just plain weird a lot of the time. They're just wrong. Uh, Rosenstrike uh, was uh, billed as being six foot three. Uh, equal height to Francis Ngannou and then they're facing off and Francis Ngannou is like a head taller <laughs> and uh, everyone talks about how Justin Gagey is enormous and uh, like uh, that's uh, uh, Dustin Poirier is billed as being 5'9 and Justin Gagey is 5'11 if you go back and watch the Poirier versus G Gagey fight Dustin Poirier is fucking is gigantic compared to Gagey he's a lot huger he's a lot more massive or at the very least, equal size with a much broader back. So it's all just a crock of shit. It's it's all bullshit. The one thing I kind of believe is that uh, Justin Gagey cuts a lot less weight than a lot of 
uh, lightweights. Doesn't seem like he, he, he's uh, not the most jacked fighter. He's not very muscular. He just looks in shape and athletic. And uh, one of the problems I've had with uh, Gage's performance in this one, uh, which contributed to a lot of the jank, I think he was like, I, I presume he was very concerned about wrestling offense of Chandler's, and that's why, hence why he lowered his level, much like he did against Habib, and fought from this crouch. And whenever uh, Chandler came darting in with his blitzes, Gage would tr- would lower his level way down and try to meet meet a Chandler head to head. Uh, which makes sense, I guess, for wrestling, but it created lots of opportunities for Chandler to land good counters in the pocket and good, just generally land very good shots. Uh, because Gage would like throw a lead right and lunge forward, leading with his face, concerned about meeting Chandler's wrestling offense head to head, and Chandler would use that as his opportunity to land the left hook or a right hand or an uppercut in certain cases. But it's it's the issues were kind of mirrored for both because Chandler was also like fighting taller than he normally does, because Gagey is just so much taller. He's like a head taller, I think, and or at least half a head taller. You know, just bigger, rangier. So Chandler was fighting taller, and he whenever he darted in uh, with his uh, right hand to the gut that he usually throws and uh, body jabs. Uh, First of all, fighting taller opened up uh, a lot of uh, left hook and uh, right hand counters for Justin. And whenever uh, Chandler darted in, like crouched, uh, crouching low, that's when Gage's uppercut came in. Uh, the uppercut with which he almost finished Michael Chandler at, 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 at one point in the fight. It was, look, looked kind of comical, honestly. Gage threw this massive uppercut and Chandler like went flying, kind of like in the beginning of uh, the intro to Batman, the animated series, where Batman throws a, an uppercut and the guy goes like in this uh, hyperbolic trajectory <laughs> in this arc and lands flat on his back. That's what happened. And this is what happened here. <laughs> but overall, just insane fight, insane balls-to-the-wall action from the opening bell. Keiji took center cage. Uh, didn't concede space for no reason. There were moments where he like a sort of backpedal, but it, it was usually during uh, Chandler's blitzes. I would much prefer if he pivoted, but then again, no one really knows how to pivot in MMA, so I guess it's kind of like uh, kind of forgivable. One thing I have to point out about uh, people are confused about uh, Michael Chandler's durability, and everyone is now talking about how maybe Justin Gage's power is overrated. And I don't believe that's the case. I think it's just uh, a byproduct of Justin Gage's mechanics. They're just kind of just really janky, and they dissipate, dissipate a lot of the power. Justin Gage doesn't really look to land. Doesn't really look for specific openings. He doesn't really sneak shots around the guard. Doesn't really make sure the the shots he's throwing. Uh, basically, you can't see his shots coming. That's what that, that's why you, you, people don't get sparked out with single connections. Justin Gage is still a gigantic, massive, like, fuck-off huge hitter. He has the crushing, thudding power that makes your arms go numb whenever he connects on your arms. That's how powerful he is. Uh, but the thing is, um, Gage wings shots in that stun just about anyone he fights, but they don't, like, flat-out put them on their ass when they're tough enough. However, whenever he manages to find those clean connections... He flatlines people. Like, if you go back and watch the Tony fight, KG connected with the left hook on Tony's mouth a lot, which obviously uh, had a lot of power and stunned Tony, but it didn't make him so much a stumble, essentially. However, when Justin threw an overhand to Tony's temple, Tony immediately did the chicken dance. He just... Uh, KG's punches are just not as unexpected as they are with certain other fighters, and he's not that hes not that quick. He's very explosive, but he's not that quick. It's very weird. Uh, it kind of like has the... Uh, he has the snap, 
but the sort of like smooth quickness isn't there. And what do I mean by smooth quickness? It's like something some, you can watch Dustin Poirier land combinations on someone, like uh, whenever he lets loose uh, along the cage, and all the punches just come in like so fluently, so easily. Okay, one punch flows into the other one. That's what I mean about smooth quickness. And Justin Gage's shots are very come come at you incredibly fast, but he loads up on them. It's kind of like, and then then the shot comes in. You have this split second where you can kind of see him loading up, and that's when you kind of sort of can brace yourself for the immediate world of hurt that you're gonna find yourself in, which kind of alleviates the damage a little bit. It's like. Uh, his mechanics and short selection basically, like, frequently handicap his own power. Like, the much-vaunted left hook for one. Everyone talks about... He's got... He's, I've talked about this before, I think. He's got great timing on it. Great reactions with it. Always, uh, pretty much every time he throws it, he connects on something. And uh, it serves a good... Like, a real purpose. He's got... Uh, he's got an understanding on when he should throw the left hook. But he often flings it out like a clothesline, which dissipates a lot of the power. And sometimes he lands like uh, with the inside of his palm and not his knuckles. He doesn't bring the hook across his opponent's jaw by turning his elbow like over, parallel to the ground. Uh, it's, it remains uh, turned uh, downward. And Conor Rebush talks about how it makes it easier to sneak uh, the hook within someone's guard. And yes, it's true. But also, uh, Justin Gage doesn't really do that often. Sometimes he just flings it out. And if he were to turn his elbow over, he could be able. He could still be able to sneak the shot around the guard, not from within the guard, but around the guard, and still like snap his opponent's jaw around and finish them with that amount of power. He should be sparking people left and right with his left hook. And he connected uh, with some real good left hooks on Chandler, but he didn't quite knock him out. And then uh, in the third round, like Chandler basically just started playing to the crowd after getting clattered for much of the fight. He, st he stunned Gagey multiple times in the fight, but it's nothing that Gagey hasn't dealt with before. And so he was able to navigate that while still throwing back. Which is kind of impressive. Um, so Chandler started playing to the crowd, like moving forward with his hands down, eating shots, pointing at Gagey, all that bullshit, throwing like spinning kicks. Uh, you know the drill. If you watched MMA for any lengthy period of time, you understand how fighters sometimes try to psych their opponents out into thinking that they're way less tired and hurt than they actually are. And, uh, and, the way to do that is to usually like pretend that you're not being hurt by strikes and to throw spinning attacks. And Gagey, what's what interested me is that Gagey had multiple moments where he could throw a really hurting counter, uh, but he didn't because each time he took superior positioning relative to Chandler, but he wouldn't throw. And something we saw against Tony. Uh, where in the fi fifth and final round, obviously, Tony, he beat the ever-living mother of fuck out of Tony. But mostly he was, all he was throwing was jabs. Didn't throw any, like, any of his power shots. And by the end, he was, like, looking at Tony, like, for fuck's sake. Oh my god, what, what, what like, what am I doing? <laughs> you could see just the concern and, like, the almost this almost sort of disgust uh this disgust at himself for like being forced to do this against another fellow human being so i guess maybe it's a case it the, it's the case of uh there are there is equal possibility for this being the case of uh Gagey just displaying conservative like being conservative to make sure he doesn't like shits the fight uh, and like coasting on the on the enormous lead that he's built up, or perhaps it's it's him showing compassion. I don't know. Maybe it's both. Interesting either way. One thing Chandler has done uh, that that has impressed me is that he's done a good job. He's done a decent job of defending the the leg kicks. 
because Justin was looking to land the calf kick uh, most of the time, and I think that that's probably because uh, because of Chandler being so much uh, so much shorter than him, and having the the uh, possibility of his kick sliding upwards and uh, Chandler catching it for for the takedown. But Chandler has done a good job of turning his uh, shin outwards to at least attempt to check it. I mean, obviously, the more effective and less painful way to check the calf kick is to raise your leg and then turn your shin inwards. So the kick slides down your shin, slides down the outside part of your shin and uh, dissipates a lot of the power of the calf kick. And uh, But in this one, he kind of like... Uh, put his foot outwards, and uh, the it was a sh- the ga- Gage was forced to make a shin to shin connection. It still hurts like fuck, but it probably hurt Gage more than Chandler, I think. But then Gage just basically started taking over and started closing the exchanges with the kick. Uh, it's impressive. What's impressive is that I expected Chandler's leg to basically like fall off at a certain point in the fight, but it didn't. And Chandler always had this issue, this weird issue with his front foot. Whenever he got kicked, especially when he got kicked, he kind of like be sent flying <laughs> in the direction of the kick, and it would like go dead immediately after a couple. Maybe he spent a lot of time. Maybe he spent most of his camp conditioning his shins. <laughs> I don't know. But there was also a really funny sequence where Chandler like raised Gagey up in the air. And took him down, and then slammed his forehead into the canvas, and almost flashed, uh, like almost flashed, no- uh, knocked out himself. Almost knocked out himself by performing the takedown. Uh, after which Gage just immediately, immediately scrambled and took the, uh, took uh, took Chandler's back while he was in turtle and started hammering him with grounded bound. Gage's hips. I've always uh ascribe to the idea that uh, I've always thought that Gage's hips are really good. They're incredibly quick. His initial defensive reaction in wrestling is really, really good. It's his chain wrestling that's pr- probably the uh, main culprit, the, the main hole in his takedown defense. But in this fight, Chandler just basically couldn't uh, press his wrestling at all. Couldn't couldn't take Gage down at all. Like The one instance was that was the one where he uh, raised Gagey uh, up in the air and then tried to slam him down, but Gagey has this sort of density. Uh, Ad Gallo talked about this a lot, in that um, Gagey kind of has this Dan Henderson-esque density to him, where you can be sure that being thrown around w- wouldn't really hurt Justin at all. And he's really good at scrambling from underneath fighters, using Grand Beast and all that kind of stuff, Fat Man rolls. And this is what happened. Uh, I think this would have would have also happened to had Chandler not uh, <laughs> knocked himself out by, by landing head first after the, taking Gagey down. Anyway, excellent fight, really great. Just even crazier on the rewatch. The reason why this took uh, so long to make, compared to some of my other podcasts and post fight breakdowns, is that I wanted to actually like rewatch everything that happened there. Well, I wanted to rewatch Chandler versus Gagey mainly. Uh, the re- also, the reason why I'm comparing this uh, to Gagey Alvarez is that Chandler actually went to the body a lot. He essentially shoe-shined Gagey's body. And Gagey started doing a good job of defending uh, those uh, body shots at, at a certain point, but still, ch- it's it's kind of like a historical problem for Gagey in that uh, Chandler was a lot quicker and so fighters who have a speed advantage on Gagey kind of like have an easier time manipulating his guard and sneaking shots around. And maybe countering him in the pocket mid- mid-exchange. Because uh, a lot of Gagey's defensive reactions are still very exaggerated. Uh, he still ducks down dramatically. He still uh, kind of takes his uh, eyes off his opponent whenever he covers up and uh, is, uh, evades punches, starts evading punches. He's trying. You could see it in him attempting to enter range while moving his head. It's kind of like the ultimate, the ultimate, um, the ultimate. He's a little confused, but he's got the spirit type performance from Gagey. You could see that he was trying to tie his usual looks and his usual pressure to his newfound skills that he's acquired recently. 
the clinch exchanges were still on point. The single collar tie uppercuts were still there. Hockey fighting Gagey, uh, always a joy to watch. In fact, I, I kind of, I kind of come to think of it, I think Gagey would do really well if he were suddenly to like if he were to focus on his dirty boxing and become like this uh, really nasty infighter. I think this would serve him much better than his uh, current style, which works really well, but still, maybe something to think about. Yeah, uh, just, uh, just, I really missed Justin Gagey. That's, I think that that's uh, the main takeaway here. Uh, the man is must watch TV. And the reason why I enjoy Justin Gage is not because he's like the best in the world or because he's uh, elite or because he's a pound-for-pound talent and all that kind of bullshit. Uh, he very arguably may not be all these things, but he's just incredibly fun. I do not remember a single fight uh, that, that which featured Justin Gagey that I didn't enjoy. Also, they've shown they've shown Paddy Pimblett uh, in the crowd that night, and he looked incredibly fat. What I s- suggest they should do is feed Paddy Pimblett to Justin Gagey. Just do it. <laughs> it's gonna be fun. I want to see Justin Gagey knock somebody out cold. It's uh, an, an endless source of entertainment. If Justin Gagey never fought for the belt again and continued fighting like up-and-comers and like laying them completely out, I would I would be a happy man. I mean, it would suck for Justin Gagey, I guess, but it's still going to be like a tremendous fun. <laughs> but uh, let's not write him off. Uh, I think he still has a shot uh, at uh, giving a really tough fight to... Chucky Olives and Dustin Poirier. The rematch was li- will likely be like completely electric still. And against uh, Chucky Olives, he still Chucky Olives still has some te- certain tendencies that may allow Justin find an avenue where he can bomb Oliveira. Either way, I don't really care. I don't really care if he wins or loses. I just want to see Justin put on uh, entertaining fights in the future, see him more often. I would not enjoy seeing him uh, like take another year-long break or like a forced exile, something like that. All right, I suppose that's enough of that. Uh, I didn't watch the prelims. I really have no interest in catching up on them. Uh, I know that Chris Barnett knocked out Fat Jan Valente with a spinning kick. Uh, I guess good for him. Uh, yeah, no interest in, in the rest of that stuff. Then Albert, uh, in his Stuff Picks article, actually nailed the dynamic to Michael Chandler versus uh, Justin Gagey, and he also nailed a lot of the dynamics in like in the rest of the fights and on the full preview to this card. So. Even though the cards already happened and we know the outcomes, I suggest it still suggests you go back and uh, listen to his to his Infenius preview for this card and uh, read the staff picks article. There's some interesting stuff in there, some interesting dynamics uh, were pointed out, and it's just kind of for validation to just show off how big everyone's brain is at uh, the fight side. And yeah, uh, subscribe to our Patreon. Uh, $3 gives you access to all of our stuff uh, that we've released over the years, also in the commentary, fight breakdowns, exclusive podcasts, all that kind of stuff. 5 bucks per month, you can join our Discord and talk to staff and uh, talk to uh, like-minded f- uh, fight fans, have uh, some actual in-depth discussion uh, about fighters and about fights and fighting in general. Or maybe you, you just want to have some fun. Um, shit post and meme, meme about things. Uh, so that that's perfectly acceptable as well. There's everyone in our Discord is pretty much either uh, like an up and coming analyst, an, an, an analytical prospect, or a meme lord, or maybe both. So it's a fun place. It's a cozy place. I suggest you join. 
I'm also incredibly active in there. I'm pretty. I'm there pretty much every day. I pop in uh, once, uh, like every day, to check some messages, talk to people, because I just really enjoy talking to these people. They're kind of like uh, they're more like friends rather than you know subscribers or followers or paying customers. I mean that as well, and I would like to have more paying customers because uh, this is the source of the the primary source of my income. <laughs> It's not much by most metrics, by most reasonable metrics, but the, uh, it counts as actual money over here in Russia. So if you don't want me to fucking die from starvation, subscribe to our Patreon. Give us money. Give us your money. Feed Iggy. Hashtag Feed Iggy on Twitter. Uh, all right. Another another one of those really like rambly and uh, shambolic stream of consciousness episodes, but nah, uh, you should be used to it by now. I'm planning on putting out more organized and like airtight episodes uh, and case studies in the future, very possibly this week or maybe uh, during well, basically during this month. I kind of intend to up my output a little bit. I'm probably not going to be able to match the mad dash that was uh, my summer, where I would just basically not sleep at all and continuously put out uh, content that tackled incredibly hard and uh, in uh, incredibly hard topics and uh, where I discussed them in depth with multiple guests. Guests, uh, this took a lot of preparation and a lot of writing from me and uh, next to no sleep, and I don't quite. Wanna, uh, I don't wish it to do a repeat of that. I kind of want to main, to remain a healthy, functioning human that isn't psychotic. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, just uh, just telling you to watch out for some of the stuff that I'm going to put out. It's probably going to be really fascinating. All right, you you were listening to Tankerdom. Uh, you know who I am. And yeah, we're done. Words cannot express my joy at the fact that uh, the Church of Keiji is uh, the gates to the Church of Keiji are once again open. It just warms my heart.